The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Good morning, Heritage. Are we on? There we go. How's everybody doing this morning? Hey, do me a favor, grab your Bibles and turn, if you would, in the book of Philippians to Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be closing out chapter 1 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand up nice and high, wave it around, jumping jacks, whatever you got to do, and get one of these guys' attention, and we'll make sure that you get one. Uh, If you don't own a Bible, that is a gift from us to you, and we pray that the Lord will just use that to teach you more and more about His grace, His goodness, and His will. A couple of announcements. Uh, First of all, um, first Wednesday, we just had our first first Wednesday service of the, or gathering, I guess you could really say, of the summer. It was a massive success. Thank you guys so much um, for all of you that came out. The turnout was actually much, much higher than we expected. Um, Can we get an amen for the grub that the Sweet Tea Express put on? Man, that was amazing. That was such such a great dinner. And as you guys know, they donated all of the money that came in for that food to the pregnancy center here in town. Um, and just to kind of give you a report, we were able to uh, collect almost $700 for the pregnancy center just from that one dinner alone, which was fantastic. Um, but it was just a great time watching the kids play and some of the games that were going on. You know you got some junior high people involved when you see games like, let's put a tennis ball in pantyhose, put that on our head, and see who we can smack with it while we're running around. Like That was just epic, that game. Um, so if you missed out on that, make sure you jump in. And the next one will be the first Wednesday coming up in July. Um, we just worship and fellowship. and There's games. We had snow cones. It was just a, just, it was a great great night of fellowship. I'm sure you guys all enjoyed that. Can't wait till the next one. Uh, Also, next Sunday is Kids Move Up Sunday. So one week from today, um, if your kid is on that boundary line, which I think, for example, fifth grade, I think, is the, the, the end of, you know, that one class group. Next week, they become sixth graders. We move them up at the beginning of the summer. So um, just keep that in mind. Next week, your kids are moving up into their next age category. And then uh, also next week, if you have a high school senior, we want to encourage you um, to be here. Um, we, we've got just, we want to be able to honor our graduating seniors this year. And so we've got some gifts for them, and we're going to take opportunities next week to do that. Um, You might want to contact also Pastor Jeremy in the youth ministry. We want to make sure we didn't miss any. It's very possible that there's seniors that um, we aren't aware of, and we want to be able to do something awesome for you guys. So that will be next week. And then there's one last announcement that that I wanted to throw in. I just got a, a message this morning from uh, Sharon Dietz. If you guys know, um, Stevie, uh, um, uh, excuse me, Ricky Dietz, uh, part of our church has been, uh, though she's living in uh, uh, Nashville at the time, she's been wrestling with uh, kidney failure for a really long time. And as it turned out, her sister Lexi was a perfect match. And so just this last week, um, they underwent a kidney transplant. So Lexi donated a kidney to Ricky. And the great news is very, very early after the trans, after the transplant surgery, um, the kidney took and everything was completely and totally successful. So we're just praising God for that. As you guys know, yeah. Um, 
It, it really couldn't have gone better. Um, she told me that there's a high likelihood that both girls are going to go home tomorrow, which is just awesome and amazing. Um, if you want to continue to pray for them, Lexi is in a lot of pain, which is expected. Um, the one who donates the kidney tends to have a harder time uh, early on. Um, Ricky, things are going, going fantastic. Her levels are now almost completely back to what you would consider normal kidney function at this point. So that's fantastic. She does have some high blood pressure. They think that's probably because of post-surgery water retention, but they're working through some of that. So if you would just continue to pray for them, their sister Stevie, Sharon, Mike, the whole family. Um, it's just, it's been a long, long ordeal working through all this, but it appears that God has been incredibly faithful to them and is just bringing them out the other side. So we're really, really thankful. And we're going to take an opportunity even right now um, to pray for them and to pray for us that the Lord would just speak to us and teach us this morning. So let's pray. God, we need you to be here with us this morning. Lord, there's nothing that any man can say. There's nothing any man could teach from this stage that would really be worth anything of lasting importance from their own energy or from their own strength or from their own logic or thoughts or intelligence or whatever. What we need, Lord, is your spirit to be in this place because, Lord, your spirit is the giver of life. Your spirit awakens our spirit that we might understand the things that we're studying. Your spirit unifies your people. Your spirit leads and gives direction. And so God, we pause right now to ask your spirit to come in. Whether we as individuals or us collectively as the church, God, right now we just pause and ask that your spirit would have its way with us. Lord, may you cause even me to speak words that are, that are in line with your scripture and your truth. Lord, may your spirit awaken the hearts and minds, Lord, of those that are here that we might understand your will for your people. May your spirit give us everything from comfort to encouragement to correction. And God, may your spirit continue its work in our life of molding us, Lord, from glory to glory, closer and closer into the image of your son. Lord, we're thankful that you are our friend. We're thankful that you are gracious and forgiving. But we pause now, Lord, with heads bowed to recognize that you are also God. You are Lord of all. And so, Father, may our heart, may our mind, and may our spirits be subject to you and your will and your word. And may you teach and lead your people. So Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight. Oh, my rock, my king, my redeemer. In Jesus' name and all God's people said. Amen. Amen. Guys, we are in Philippians chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 27 and closing out chapter 1. And then we get into kind of the, the, if you will, the famous passage of Philippians where we start looking at the life of Christ, at his humility and his gracious act. But this is a really important text here that's closing out. It's, it's, this passage is often entitled The Worthy Life because of the words that Paul uses here in this text. And it's incredibly applicable, not just to the people in Philippi, but to the church in Medford, Oregon, and churches all over our country as well, especially in this day and age. 
he's going to be talking a lot about the worthy life. Now, Shakespeare wrote several plays that featured Henry V. And in the stories that Shakespeare portrayed of Henry V, almost all of them portrayed him as this young, vain, really just a party animal. Lived with no real responsibilities, drank and caroused, just ran around like crazy. He was a totally irresponsible, vain young man until the day that his father, the king, was laying on his deathbed. And then suddenly the gravity of who he was sort of hits him. He realizes all of a sudden who his father is, what his father has done, how his father had nobly led the, the nation and how he had carried himself with this stature, the importance of his role as king and how amazing he had been at it. And he's realizing now that because he's the son of the king, this mantle's transferring. And so up to now, he's lived this life where of just reckless abandon, but now suddenly more than ever, the reality of his role, his identity, and his calling hit him like a ton of bricks. And so he there in, in Shakespeare's play comes to the side of his father's bed as his father's lying on his deathbed and he says this, the tide of blood in me hath proudly flowed in vanity till now. Now doth it turn and ebb back to the sea where it shall mingle with the state of floods and flow henceforth in formal majesty. The key part of that is he's saying from now on the blood that is in, in me will flow henceforth with formal majesty. He's saying, I understand what I've been. I understand who you are. I understand what is required of me because of my identity as the son of the king and now about to become a king himself. I understand the weight of this calling and from now on, Father, I'm pledging to you that I'm going to live differently. I'm going to live a life that reflects the majesty of the position that I'm actually in. And that's the closing of Philippians chapter 1. Now, we are here listening to Paul who's writing a letter to an actual church at an actual period of time in a place called Philippi. And the background and, and kind of the, the contextual setting of that city is really important for us to understand, to help us understand why this applies to us. Now, Paul had come through and he had planted this church in this place on what's referred to as his second missionary journey. He came through, started this church, started preaching the gospel to people, and instantly it began to grow. People were becoming attracted, but instantly also it was met with resistance and persecution. You might know Paul and Silas almost instantly end up in prison. It's the famous story where they're worshiping in jail. Even though the, the walls are coming down, there's an earthquake, but they stay and the jailers saved. There's an incredible story. We looked at our introduction to Philippians of this very story. And so from day one, the church has been growing, but from day one, the church has had to go through hard things. And so now it's at least, depending on which historian you believe, it's at least four years later. And Paul's writing a letter back to this church to encourage them and to teach them and instruct them on how to move forward in life based on what life's looking like. And it's kind of fitting, he's writing from prison. He's in a Roman jail now. He hopes to get out, but he has no idea if he's going to. And so as he's writing to these people, he begins to write, first of all, about his deep love for them. 
This is the only church he writes. We've said this every week. It's important to know. It's the only church he writes that he's not correcting and saying, guys, knock it off. He loves this church. There's something about this church. They just seem to be nailing it. Not sinless, but they're just doing a great job. And Paul just has a special place in his heart for these people. And so he writes to tell them how much he loves them. He talks about how the difficulties he's experienced in life, and that list is long, but how all these difficulties in his life have only served to further the mission of the church, to continue to spread the gospel that had saved them to many other places. He's saving more and more guards. Churches are popping up in more and more places. More and more people are receiving Christ, even though it would be easy to look at the difficulties coming as something that's like going to challenge and shrink the church. He's saying, no, not at all, man. We're growing even more. The, the more the persecution comes, the more the gospel is going out. And then he talks about, as we looked at last week, his ability to find joy regardless of the circumstances that he's in. It's the famous line, we looked at it extensively last week, to live is Christ and to die is gain. Or, or literally, to live Christ. It's like a pulpit pounding phrase that he's throwing. To live Christ. It works better on a wood pulpit. To live Christ, to die, gain. And he's saying, look, if, if we live, then we live for Christ. Because knowing who Christ is, knowing what Christ has done for us, what could possibly be more important? What is there to live for that could even come close to comparing with Christ? And then to die, it's gain. Because we get him. We are with him and he he doesn't even talk about the mansions or the treasures he just talks to live Christ we are with him there could be nothing better in our existence than to be with Christ but but here's the thing the, this is what I love about this book for example he's not cheesy you know what I mean cheesy like life's great it's basically the way most of you answered questions to one another when you came in this place this morning how are things oh great How's life? Oh, it's good. Blessings on you. Oh, the Lord's blessing me. Things are good. There's, there tends to be, let's just be honest when we're talking about ourselves here, there tends to be a little ounce of cheesiness that goes along with a lot of Christianity. And sometimes it can get, well, annoyingly cheesy. I actually saw an article just this week that came out that was talking about the difficulty that modern mainstream uh, Christian music is having. Not necessarily worship music, but, but modern mainstream music. K-Love, K-Dove, Air One, that kind of stuff. And they were talking about how it's declining in popularity compared to the fact that it had been so quickly growing in popularity in years past. And, and as people who study these things, different professors at seminaries and all these different places, as they're studying it, what they're finding out about it, and this is the quote, that much of the Christian music coming out right now is, quote, unrelentingly cheerful. That's what they said, unrelentingly cheerful. And you go, that's good. We want a positive, encouraging air one. But, but the problem is, is it becomes profoundly unrelatable sometimes. Because a lot of times when people are singing, they want to be able to sing songs that they can relate to, whether it be the desires of their heart or the experiences of their life. And so, so there were professors and authors. There was this one man, Richard Beck, who's a psychology professor at Abilene Christian University. He said this, 
When Christian pop songs and hymns are excessively positive or wholly positive, they often come across as cotton candy and inauthentic. The most lasting hymns and worship music historically are those that account for the reality of sin and the fallen world around us, and yet how God is able to deliver us in spite of it. What this means is, there tends to be something that draws us to the music that actually has that little bit of dark in it from which the light shines. And we're not talking about songs written to depress, and we're not talking about songs that we just wallow in our difficulty. But think about the hymns that we love so much that have stood through the tests of time. Think about songs like Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound. That what? Saved a wretch like me. There's something about the reality of the human condition that makes the grace in that song all the more amazing. Think about others. For example, it is well with my soul. You guys know the backstory on that, right? The guy that wrote that was on a ship crossing to England. He wrote that song as the ship passed the very place where his entire family had just died in a sinking ship. He writes it from heartache, and the song talks about the difficulties, about how Satan should buffet, how trials should come, but let this blessed assurance control. That's a prayer. Satan's coming. Trials are buffeting. Life is hard, but Lord, please let this be what controls me. It is well with my soul. It's a beautiful song. Think of Come Thou Fount. You guys know that song, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. It's probably my favorite hymn of all time. And my favorite part of it, I I always love singing the Ebenezer part because no one knows what that means. Everybody goes Dr. Scrooge or whatever it is on that thing. But Ebenezer means monument, singing about a monument or a place of remembrance. But but my favorite part is the... Actually, the last, the last verse. Any else, anybody else with me? Because if it is, you know why. Two people. Cool. We'll have lunch and talk about it sometime. Here's why. What does it say? Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Do you know there's people that have tried to change the lyrics to that song? They've, they've tried to literally change the lyrics to prone to worship, Lord, I feel it. That is unrelentingly cheesy. Because I don't know too many people that their default reaction to any difficulty that comes their way is to absolutely be prone to worship. But our flesh is very prone to wander. But to be able to take that, to be able to take the difficulty of that and us in an opportunity to engage our hearts and souls in worship to God and be able to plead to him that says, this is my experience, but God is the one who can save me. There's something that can happen in your soul that that's where actual worship happens. It's like a prayer of our heart to God in that moment. I'm prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. And isn't there something that's almost in the grittiness of that song that grabs us and it makes us, it, we can relate to it and we can pray it and yet it still somehow blesses us, doesn't it? That's the reality of it. Now, Paul is not unrelentingly cheesy. Paul is very open and honest about the realities here. 
And, and I think there can be a tendency in us at times that, that as Christians, we need to make it look like God's got everything in control and we don't worry and struggle with anything because the fear can be, if I look weak, it makes God look like he's not strong enough to deal with my difficulties. But when you do that, you're actually making the strength of your faith dependent on your strength, not God's strength. When the reality of the gospel from the very beginning is an admission that we can't do it at all. It is the work of God, not us. It is God's strength, God's grace in spite of our weaknesses. And so, so there's a place, there's a great, if you want to Google it and watch it, it's a little bit longer. I won't bore you with the clip, but, but actually the, the lead singer, Bono, is it Bono or Bono? I don't know. You two, I don't like him. But anyway, you two um, is with Eugene Peterson. Who, who wrote one of the best books ever on pastoral ministry um, called The Pastor, but he, but he also wrote, you might know, The Message and things like that. And, and they're sitting at a table together and they're talking about music and worship. And one of the things they talk about is how, how incredibly honest the Psalms of David were, where he sings about his doubts, he sings about his fears, he sings about his difficulties, he sings about his pain. But the part that's beautiful in it is that throughout all of those things, he's still turning to God for help and power and assistance as he walks through them. That doesn't make our faith look weak. That makes our God look like the ones who's all sufficient. Not us. And so there's beauty in that. And that's what I love about Paul. Paul can write about the difficulties he's going through, but he can do it in such a way that it's not causing or, or showcasing some loss of faith, but really it's, it's showcasing a turn to the basis of our faith so that we can remember where our rock actually is. So Paul, if anything, is not cheesy. Amen? And so here in Philippians 2, we have this, this place, and it comes in, and this is such an incredible, this, this is important for us too, by the way, because you, you got to know this. Paul's writing to them from prison, knowing life's gonna get harder for them. So think about his flow. I, I love you guys. The difficulties I have experienced, man, they're just pushing the gospel out there further. And, and that's, that's amazing and awesome anyway, because to live is Christ and to die is gain. So no matter what it is I go through, I can deal with this. He'll go on later to say, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, which doesn't mean I can win every boxing match because I got Jesus's Bible verse on my shorts. What it means is any difficulty that comes my way, I can handle it because God is with me. So this is the, the trajectory. This is Paul's thought process. Guys, living is Christ, dying is gain. And now he's going into, but hey, this is what the worthy life of Christ looks like. And he's doing it knowing two things. He's in jail and they might be. Life's getting harder. The Caesar in charge now, Nero. He's going to become renowned and studied to this day for his mass persecution of Christians. So Paul knows, I can't come in here with some cheesy, fluffy, everything's great, we float around on clouds. What's the Lego song? Everything is awesome. Like that, that is not a Christian worship song, right? God is awesome. Everything around here tends to just, uh. And so he's writing to these people in a profoundly applicable and real way. And so knowing life was to get hard, and, and by the way, Americans... That's a profoundly Christian experience. You gotta remember our experience, even difficulties we feel like we're facing right now as Christians, 
is a piece of cake compared to what the vast majority of people's Christian experience has been like. We are the weird ones. Everybody know that? Like we're the ones that have had it made. It's probably changing though. And no matter what, even in our own personal lives or wherever the case may be, while our difficulties wouldn't compare to maybe the martyrs of yesterday or the martyrs of today, they do still exist The reality is this. Well, Timothy writes it this way. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. How many? And all means what? All. So think about this for just a second. Paul's about to say, here's how you live a life that is worthy of the gospel. And to Timothy, he writes, anyone who desires to live a godly life, they're going to endure what? Persecution. This is not cheesy. This is not, hey, walk around nice and holy. Everything's going to go great for you. This is not prosperity theology. This is none of this. This is Paul saying, this is the way you're supposed to live. And he knows what this means. So with that in mind, let's look at what he says. Verse 27. He says, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. So that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you. That you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Now Paul begins this this paragraph, if you will, here, this, this section about living a life worthy of the gospel, using a word that is so difficult to translate from their language into the English language that some translations like the ESV or the NIV use as many as six or seven words to do it. And the word that he uses, it's it's polyet. Polieto. It's, it's where we get the word polis, or if you think metropolitan, it's the word for city. So we're thinking city, this community in this area. And what he literally says here at the beginning when it says, only let your manner of life be worthy, it literally says, only worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live as citizens. That's the word, citizens. Your, some of your Bibles will even have a little asterisk or a, a letter or something. And you look down in the fine print at the bottom and it'll say, live as citizens. Now, why is this important? What does this mean? Think about what Paul's saying here. Here's where the context is really helpful. This city here, Philippi, this is the, the location of a major battle for the Roman people. You guys know the famous story, Julius Caesar, et tu brute, or I, I don't speak Shakespeare, but you know how the knife goes in the back and, and Caesar is, is assassinated by people within his own government, with his own people. Well, a battle comes up years later where Mark Antony and others come and they're at war against those who had conspired to kill Julius Caesar. And that battle ends up taking place right here. It wasn't a city. There was no town there. It was a battlefield really is what it was. And so when that battle ended, the Roman people win. You've got all these soldiers amassed in this area and they didn't know what to do with them. They didn't necessarily want to bring all these soldiers back into the city and have a bunch of unemployed and super violent men here. There seemed to be some level of peace, at least as the Romans knew it, it was peace through oppression, but there seemed to be security. They didn't really need the soldiers at that time. And so what they decided to do is just give them that land and let them start a new outpost, a new city there. So Philippi, while not within the boundaries of Rome proper, it's an outpost. 
It, it, it's a, a almost segment of or representative of Rome that's not in Rome. It's out here. It's out on the peripheral. And so think about what you're talking about here. These are people who are incredibly nationalistic. They didn't live anywhere near Rome, but they enjoyed all the benefits. They were Roman citizens. And Roman citizenship there was something that they were very, very proud of. And so when Paul's talking to these guys and he's saying, hey, live as citizens, he's drawing on their experience there in the city of Philippi. Live as citizens, but not of Rome in an outpost here, but now you're, you're a whole different citizenship. You are now citizens of heaven. You are now part of the kingdom of God. And so now live as citizens of this new city. So what would that mean to them? Well, for, first of all, it would mean a certain level of pride. I mean, the Roman people were incredibly proud to be Roman people. It, it, we understand this, do we not? I mean, just, just this week, Memorial Day, um, I took my family out in a drift boat. And we all floated down the river and there were like flags on people's houses. It's all decorated. We have a nationalistic pride. Some would argue in other places it may be waning, but I assure you there is a great deal still of this American pride that exists, right? And I can remember, and, and by the way, we should be, amen? We should be proud and thankful to live in the nation that we live in. I remember when we were coming back from Uganda one time, and we were in Amsterdam. And the Amsterdam airport, I don't know if you've ever been there, but um, it's, it's one of the most common layovers when you're flying back and forth through there. And it's just kind of, the airport there is just kind of, sometimes our flights take us through London. It's so much better because you're coming out of Ugandan food. You want something good. Amsterdam is not where you want to end up, but that's where we were. And then we're going through security and the security in the Amsterdam airport is incredibly intense. They're very, very strict. And we went through there. I just saw him come in a minute ago. I should have asked permission, but I didn't. Forgive me, Patrick. But Patrick Hawking is with us and something had happened. His bag had gotten mushed or something and his American passport had gotten sort of mangled. It was okay. It wasn't that bad, but it, but it had some wrinkles and stuff like that. And I can remember we're going through security. And so the, the guys there at Amsterdam, they're looking at our, our different paperwork and Patrick comes up and hands it to him. And the guy looks at it and he's like looking back at him and he's like looking back and he starts full on lecturing Patrick about his care of his passport. It was, it was like, it wasn't just like a seriously, but it was like, stop and listen to me for a minute while I make you feel like you're about that tall. And he's like full on lecturing him and he's going, do you realize the blessing that you have an American passport? Do you realize what other people anywhere in the world would do to have this passport and this is how you're treating it? And now you wanna know the sad reality? So for Patrick and me both as we're standing there because we talked about this immediately after, the, the, the initial thought that rose up as this guy's lectures, because your pride's getting hit, right? We were just like, yeah, and you know what? We can get another one. <laughs> that, <laughs> that's terrible, right? But that's totally what we felt. We're like, who are you to lecture us? We're in Amsterdam, but carrying ourselves with a nationalistic pride that we kind of probably need to repent from a little bit. But, but there, first of all, there should be a sense of pride to be part of the kingdom of God. High schoolers, if you're in here, man, graduation was last night, so they're probably still asleep because I hear they have an overnight thing, but whatever. Listen, 
When you leave here and go there, wherever that is, more often than not, the Christian experience is you end up for periods of time at least in places that are not as hospitable towards the beliefs that your household put or, or blessed you with as you grew up. And you end up in what some would refer to as, well, let's just say antagonistic territory, hostile territory towards your belief or whatever. And you will be led to feel ashamed of your belief. But Paul would say, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus. Christ for is the power of life. You should be proud to be part of the family of God himself, no matter what anyone else tells you. Because I assure you, as we will soon see as well, every knee will one day bow before our King. Every single knee, whether they want to or not, and to be part of that kingdom should make you feel that that's something to treasure. That's something to be thankful for. That's something to be proud of. That, that citizen, citizenship in heaven should be coveted infinitely more than citizenship in America. So be proud. This idea of living as an outpost of God would mean, hey, there's an honor to that. Know that honor. Uh, but, but also it means submission and duty. It doesn't just mean walking around with your chest puffed out, but the people then understood fully that to have Roman citizenship, something that we might boast about or be proud of, but it is also at the same time a declaration of allegiance and submission to the one who's on the throne. So you might before others puff out your chest, I'm a Roman, but before Caesar, you bow. And the same would be true here. Sometimes there can be way, I, I shouldn't say too much, it's not even possible, but there can be such an infinite uh, uh, emphasis on the love, grace, brotherhood of God that we, if we're not careful, we can forget he's Lord and we bow before him. We're submitted to him. That citizenship in the kingdom of heaven, there is a duty before our king. It's not just the benefits of membership without any of the responsibilities of it. And so as he talks about Christian living, there's a sense in them that says, yes, there's pride to be a Roman, but there's also responsibility in being a Roman because being a Roman means we serve Caesar. So how much more? And there are the, how many, the benefits to being in the kingdom of God are amazing, Amen. But never forget, we are submitted to the Lord. He is our God and he is our king and we owe him allegiance and duty. Amen? But then it goes back around. It's an honor to serve such a God. It's an honor to serve such a king. I, I mean, sports teams here, when they win a championship, they can't wait to, to have that day to go to the White House to meet the president, just to meet him. That's nothing compared to the privilege of being part of the family of God. Amen? So, so living this godly life, living as a, an outpost of the kingdom of God in this place, living as a Roman, he's drawing on their experience of living as a Roman in a non-Roman territory. So, so us too, he's telling the church, he's saying, hey, there's pride, there's a sense of belonging, there's also submission. These are the things that would just naturally come to their mind because they were so focused on their citizenship there. But now there's going to be this brand new element that's added to their lives. 
and it's persecution. Because as a Roman, you didn't experience any of that. Like their experience as a Roman citizenship meant life's easier. You have certain rights. You have certain protections. You, you're part of the power that's on the nation at the, or on the world at that time. So being part of that citizenship tent only meant good things. It's kind of the way the Christian experience in America has been for a really long period of time. Being a Christian in America, well, you're an American, so you were afforded certain rights, certain opportunities. And as we've said, there's been periods of time in our country's history where putting a Christian logo on your business card was a good business move. It might actually cause you to increase your profits. But things are changing for us, aren't they? Things are changing for them a lot. It's not just dollars and cents. It could be life and death. And so this new element is coming into their experience that they can't necessarily draw on their Roman experience in the same way because they've never had to experience persecution like this. And so now living a life worthy of the gospel means steadfastness. Let's look at it again. Verse 27, only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. So he's telling them this, church, as you live a life that is worthy of the citizenship of the kingdom, as you live as a citizen of the kingdom of heaven in the world around you, one of the things you're going to need, one of the things I want to hear about, one of the things that means is steadfastness. You don't have to tell anybody to be steadfast when things are easy because there's nothing pushing on them. But when persecution comes, things get a little bit harder. And he's saying, hey, your tendency when stuff gets hard might be to want to back off and start to go with the flow because it starts to get hard. But, but my prayer for you, what I want to hear about you as time goes on is that the church in Philippi was steadfast. Parents, our young people need to know this, but here's the key to it. Like, it's really easy. Those of you that are launching kids out in the world, we can all do the whole thing where we're like, hey, stay with Jesus, find a good church, be faithful, be steadfast. But here's the part that so many people have missed for so long. He's not, this isn't some like, pick yourself up by your bootstraps. Like, this isn't like a self-effort, like I need to start being strong now. That's not what he's talking about at all. Because he actually says that they may be strong, firm, what? In one spirit. And that, that, what he's talking about there, he's later going to translate a different way, but it says the same thing. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. Our strength as Christians is not found in ourselves. It's found in our God. Our God who indwells us, who empowers us, who encourages us, who grows us, who strengthens us. It is reliance on the Holy Spirit of God that gives us the ability to stand fast. Look, Jesus knew this. That's why he told the apostles before he left, hey, go to Jerusalem and don't even try to do ministry until the Spirit comes. Just go to Jerusalem and wait and God will send you power from on high. That's why Paul writes, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. How does he strengthen us? He has given us his spirit to empower us and lead us and guide, to encourage us. I mean, even in Romans, doesn't Paul write about how the spirit testifies that we are part of the family of God, that our spirit cries out, Abba? 
And so when persecution from a different citizenship is coming, and when you can feel like, man, I don't know, this is hard, this is scary, I'm going to shy away from my citizenship, the spirit inside us is reminding us you're part of the kingdom of God. You're God's son. Persecution's coming, yeah, 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 but your dad is God, you're going to make it. Yeah, but it's Caesar, so what? Your dad is God. You're going to be all right. And, and, and parents, the part that's been problematic his, in our recent history with young people launching out into going to college and all this kind of stuff is this. They've heard it, they've not seen it. As people have studied and tried to figure out why are so many young people when they go off to college, why are so many of them walking away from their faith? What they have found, the single most important element in the life of a child growing up who stayed with their faith no matter where they went was not how many Bible verses they memorized, not their church attendance, not their youth pastor, but did they see that faith lived out in the family they grew up with? In other words, as they're watching you, dad, do they realize that the Holy Spirit is real? Do they even remember that the Holy Spirit is an element that they can turn to, someone they can turn to and draw power from when difficulty comes? Or do they just see us as our tendency is to just drift back into kind of just doing things our own way? And so we could preach it and our youth ministry will preach it, and Christian schools can preach it, but the single biggest factor in whether your child walks with God all the days of their life is actually gonna be seeing how your faith is lived out, or at least it's one of them, that and the faithfulness of God, of course. And that's why Paul says, follow me as I follow Christ. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. That's why Paul's encouraging them not to do something that, that he hasn't done and not to do something that they haven't seen in him. He's saying, hey, stand firm. And, and what that also means is unity and teamwork. Because we remember this from Ephesians. I think we might have this text. This is going to sound very familiar compared to the very passage that we're in right now. Look what he says in Ephesians 4. I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to what? Maintain unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And this is the passage that then goes into, here are the ministries of the church and how the Holy Spirit empowers ministry in the church, prophets and teachers, evangelists. And so as he's writing about the Holy Spirit's work in the church, what is it that he's telling them? He's saying, hey, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. I'm urging you, listen, maintain unity in the Spirit. And, and that's just the reality. Church, we need one another in general. When persecution comes, we really need one another. There is no such thing as Lone Ranger Christianity. There has been in America... That's not, that's not intended Christianity. But as things change, well, hopefully we change. And there, this is a sermon I'm saving for later. So I'm going to tell you this now and then you can forget it later so you'll be surprised when you come back in later. But, but there's something purifying about persecution for the church that's actually really, really good for us. It reminds us of the things that are important and has a tendency to bring us back. It's almost as if the chastisement of the Lord brings good. And so when we experience persecution, historically, the church has always flourished and thrived when things got harder. And one of the reasons is it draws us back to what we're supposed to be doing in the first place. 
And so he's telling them that I want to hear that you guys are standing firm against this persecution, unified in the spirit, side by side, striving for the gospel together. And so the benefits of that Holy Spirit unity are not just encouragement as we face persecution, not just encouragement to help us like understand and remember what persecution's for, but this idea of teamwork that, look, there's a mission here. We're not an outpost that just sits idly by. Like we are on mission to advance the gospel of God and we cannot do this on our own. Teamwork is absolutely required. We desperately need one another. Church, I don't care how amazing you might be. I don't care how uh, you might be one of those guys that has just built your own life from the ground up. I'm telling you right now, if you desire to live a godly life, you need the other people in this room. You do. You are not self-sufficient. Only Christ is. And he has blessed us with a diversity of people and a diversity of gift in the church that we can come together and accomplish the mission that he's given us and that we might grow up. You know what that means too? That means you need the people you don't like also because they tend to be the ones that might grow us up in terms of our character more than anybody. Hanging out with people we like all the time that doesn't ever push on us, well, that doesn't grow you as much as, like you wanna learn patience? Hang out with someone that drives you crazy, right? You wanna learn grace? Well, you gotta hang out with someone that needs some. And that usually means they probably bothered you or they've fallen or sin has entered in, or they've offended you, or something. And that's how you learn grace. You don't just go, Lord, I need patience, and like, poof. But, but God blesses us with experiences that allow us to grow in patience and grace and mercy. And we do that as a church, collectively. Stones, the rough edges being brushed off so that we're fit together, the church, the temple of Christ. So we need one another. That means we need you to be active in the church so that we're in community and fellowship with one another. And we as individuals need to be active in the church in community and fellowship with one another so that we accomplish the mission and grow up in the person of Christ. Amen? Now, look what he says. And do not be frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but your salvation and that from God. And you go, ah, cheesy, there it is. Don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It actually literally, literally translates, don't panic. I mean, there's reason to be afraid when Nero is in charge. But what he's saying is, hey, but keep your head about you. If you are maintaining that bond with one another and you're maintaining that steadfastness in the spirit, then what he's saying is, is watch and see. You're gonna see that the difficulties you go through prove your deliverance and their destruction. Say, what do I mean by that? Well, well think about it. When someone is steadfast and resolute against persecution that's coming to them, and I, I mean, I'm not talking like general persecution, like some dude dented your car with a grocery cart in the parking lot. I'm not talking about, that's not persecution, that's just life in a fallen world, amen? I'm talking about like when your stance for Christ causes difficulty in your life, okay? Persecution for Christ. And so whether it is you look at, at Paul's life, or you look at the martyrs historically or even today, when you see people on trial for their beliefs, maybe even facing death for their beliefs, you see two things happen. Number one, you see the more steadfast they are, the more angry the persecutors get. 
It's, it's as if it's proving the fact that they're far from God. Their own anger is proving the fact that those who are persecuting Christ are actually set up to be judged by God. But at the same time, you see this other thing happen where the Spirit of God comes on these people and supernaturally, and I mean that literally, empowers them to stand in a way that even we here as Christians outside of that moment can go, man, I hope I can do that when I get to that point if that should ever happen, God forbid. You ever thought about that? Like we can sing amazing grace and how great thou art, but have you ever had that thought run through your mind? What would I do if I was standing before the hangman's noose and they were saying, recount your faith? That's where Paul would say, in your own strength, your flesh is gonna say, I'm out. But look, even Christ before he went to the cross was empowered by God to walk forward. He even was saying, Lord, if there's any other way, take this from me. He didn't want to go through it. Jesus wasn't cheesy going to the cross. He understood the difficulty and the reality, but the power to do so came from God and his walk with God. And the same is true for us. Those people that stand before the hangman's noose and are able to be faithful, they are able to do so because the spirit of God in them is proving who they are and that the ultimate destruction here on earth is nothing but a nap for them in which they'll wake up with Jesus. And so that's what he's saying here. Hey, the persecution's only gonna prove this. And he goes on and says this, verse 29, for it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also, what? Suffer for his sake. This is a super popular verse. Engaged in the same conflict that you and I had, excuse me, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. If anyone ever finds this verse on a bumper sticker, please take a picture for me because I'm pretty sure it doesn't exist. No one puts on a t-shirt, suffer for Christ. But I want you to notice something here. Understand, the gospel in Philippi has been threatened and threatening to, if you will, the establishment there from day one. From the very beginning, this outpost of the kingdom of God in this Roman city has been offensive to everything that's gone on. It's been an affront to the pagan lifestyle there. It's been an affront to their own worship of Caesar. It's been an affront to their own declaration of citizens of that city. You wanna know something weird? In that town, Christians were often called atheists. No kidding. They were called atheists because their, their declaration of Jesus as Lord meant that they did not believe in Caesar as Lord. And so they were referred to often as atheists in that very area. And their citizenship, they're now declaring citizenship to a completely different city. And you gotta understand too, the nationalistic pride that was there. Like we now in our cities, we don't have the same kind of feel. You can live in Medford and hate it. There's a a lot of people that do, or at least they say they do because they think it's cool to say whatever. You'll hear people call it things like Deadford. We've all heard that, right? Hear people joke like, oh, I almost got out of Medford, but somehow it sucked me back in. You know, just things like that all the time. So you can live in a city and not experience the same sort of nationalistic or the same sort of belonging and being a part of the city like you did. But that wasn't the case then. This was like life. And so to declare that you were, had a citizenship somewhere else, and Paul's going to use it in Philippians 3.20. He's going to talk about our citizenship in heaven. That was supremely un- un-Roman and, and treasonous. 
Okay? And so in doing that, Paul says, with that in mind, God will grace you with two things. Do you see there in the verse where it says, for it has been granted? That word literally translates grace. It has been graced. God has now graced or gifted you with two things. The first thing he wants us to remember, we have been graced with belief. He says it there that it has been graced to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe, and this is again what I was talking about earlier, we forget what a grace it is that God opened our eyes to the reality of the gospel and brought us into citizenship in heaven. Like you ever just stop and think about that? I mean, even like going down the Rogue River this last week and you see people from out of town and they're there visiting and taking pictures. Sometimes I have to stop and remind myself, man, I live in a place where people all over the world will work for 50 to 51 weeks out of the year so that they can take one week off to come here where we live every single day. That's a grace because you know, in God's will, he could have had you born in Iraq. I mean, he could have, or South Dakota, or Cleveland, <laughs> right? It is a grace. And sometimes we just have to stop because we start to take things for granted. And it's good for us to stop in our spirit and go, it's a blessing that I've been given to be able to live in a place such as this. And, and Paul would say too, hey, you have been graced with belief in Christ. And it is important for us once in a while to just stop and realize what a blessing it is that God opened our eyes and saved a wretch like us. What a blessing it is that we could come to church or to VBS or to a backyard Bible club or to your parents' living room and be taught the beautiful, miraculous gospel of Jesus Christ. And then that the spirit would awaken those truths inside you, that God would be wooing you to him, that he would then grant you citizenship in the kingdom of God. That is a incredible, incredible gift that costs Jesus Christ everything. So it is a grace that we have belief in that. But then he says the weird part, that we have been graced with belief, but we've also been graced with what? Say it out loud. Suffering. Graced with suffering? We've been given the gift of suffering? Surely that's a typo. But, but listen, listen to what he says. And you see this, by the way, throughout the scriptures. Acts chapter 5, you see the apostles get uh, persecuted for their beliefs. And when they're released, they go forth. And what is it they say? They left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for his name. It's like they, they got beat. Then they left the council and they're rejoicing that they were given such an honor. And that almost sounds cheesy, doesn't it? Be honest, you can say yes. Thank you, sir, may I have another? Like that, that's almost what it sounds like. Well, Christian philosopher Karl Barth said this. The grace of being permitted to believe in Christ is surpassed by the grace of being permitted to suffer for him, of being permitted to walk the way of Christ with Christ himself to the perfection of fellowship with him. He's saying that the grace of suffering for Christ even surpasses that grace of belief. And why would he say such a thing? And what does that mean? Here's what this means. When you suffer for the case of the gospel, you have moved far beyond being a mere beneficiary of what Christ went through. But you're now in it with him. You understand? Like, let me put it this way. 
You can make friends anywhere, but it's been said before. You can make friends anywhere, acquaintances anywhere, but genuine brotherhood is born out of blood. It's born in the trenches. It's born in the battles. You ever watch movies like Band of Brothers and you see some of the bonds that come over soldiers who can be from two completely different places with two completely different backgrounds, but they're bound together by a call, a mission, and a belief that causes a relationship that endures. They could be separated for years and years and years and then have some sort of reunion on a Memorial Day service and there's a bond there that was never broken because it's thicker than just mere geography. And so too, when hard times come, and by the grace of the Spirit of God, you persevere, and you, not backing away from the difficulty, but leaning in, standing steadfast for the grace of God, the difficulty you go through, it unites you. It's why Paul says that there is a fellowship of sufferings with Christ. It's why the scriptures talk about being counted worthy of the sufferings of Christ, because you're not just a mere beneficiary, you're part of it. It's like you're in there with him and for him. So, so young people, understand something. We, we can portray leaving, if you will, the nest and going off to the liberal college or to, to the unchristian workplace or whatever the case may, wherever it is you're going, in military, wherever the case. We can portray it as it's like, man, it's just going to be hard. It's going to be difficult. It's going to stink. But you got to really stand in there. you got to really stand in there. But, but you got to understand something too. There is a grace given you that you should stand in that place. That is a gift of God to be united in the sufferings of Jesus Christ who suffered persecution for your sake that you might live. That's a blessing. Now, you'll need one another to get through it. You'll need the church to get through it. You'll need the power of the Spirit to get through it. But difficulty is not necessarily something we should always want to shy away from. I mean, so often, when things get hard or where things get rough, we look at it as if something's gone wrong. We go, well, I must have sinned, and so I'm, I'm going the wrong direction. I must be doing something wrong, and God's shutting all the doors because life's gotten hard. No, not necessarily. Even Peter writes, hey, when persecution comes, don't react as if something strange is happening to you. Difficulty is part of the Christian experience. Jesus Christ himself said, in this world, you will have trouble. We just saw where Paul writes to Timothy and says, hey, it's going to be hard. Anyone who desires to live a godly life is gonna have a hard time. And so we tend to think either, okay, if life's hard, I'm outside of God's will, um, or we want to shy away from it completely, or sometimes we just feel like the difficulty we're going through is like a sign of God's neglect. Like, God, where were you? And, and a lot of this feeds into kind of our heart's desire towards things like prosperity theology. If we do good, things will just work out for us. But again, us spoiled Americans, tribulation, persecution is part of the Christian experience and that's a good thing. It is grace to be united. Your faces aren't telling me you believe that, but I'm telling you the scriptures say this. It is a good thing to be able to experience. The Bible says, blessed are you when people persecute you. It is a blessing to stand firm through the persecutions of Christ. Let me, let me close with this one last quote here. This is John Calvin. He says this. Oh, if this conviction were fixed in our minds, that persecutions are to be reckoned among God's benefits, what progress would be made in the doctrine of godliness? And yet what is more certain 
than that I, the highest honor of divine grace, we suffer for his name either reproach or imprisonment or miseries or tortures or even death. For in that case, he decorates us with his insignia. That's a great line worth reading again. In persecution, in reproach, imprisonment, miseries, tortures, or even death. For in that case, he decorates us with his insignia. But more will be found who will order God and his gifts to be gone. Rather than embrace the cross readily when it is offered them. Woe then to our stupidity. Church, we as part of the American nation have grown really accustomed to the comfort of living the Christian life. And if the trajectory we're on were to continue, those days are ending. And I think Paul would say to us today, hey, don't panic. Keep your head about you. Know your citizenship. Know who you are. Stand firm, united in the gospel with one another. Stand firm on your beliefs. Don't shy away when you want to seek the comfort that our heart so much desires. But instead, understand there is blessing and gifts in belief and endurance of difficulties for the sake of the name of Jesus Christ. I I said this about four years ago, and I got more grief from this one line than I've probably gotten over anything else in the history of our church. But this is the reality of it. If you desire to live a godly life and you analyze everything going on in your life and everything's roses and easy, fix it. Fix it. It it means we've gotten comfortable. It means that we're, we're not standing against persecution. We're not advancing the gospel. We're probably not loving and serving one another in the church the way we are. We've probably isolated ourselves away from the reality of our citizenship of the kingdom of God. And we've been lo- kind of coaxed gently into a life of just ease and comfort when the reality is we are part of the kingdom of God. We are soldiers for the Christ. We have a mission that we've been given. We have been blessed with grace and a God who desperately loves us us, but also we are part of a citizenship that bows its allegiance to God, our King, and we serve him. And his commandment is go, infect the fallen world with the grace of Jesus Christ. Push back against darkness, push back against the fallenness of this world. Show the world what the kingdom is going to look like when I return, that I might call more and more people to me. This is the call of our church. Amen. Amen. We're going to pray now, and Sam's going to come up and lead us in one last song. And what I want to do is just take opportunity once again. We did this about two weeks ago. We probably should do this every week. Because we can't, this is not about self-effort. It'd be really easy to walk away from a teaching like this with our list. Like, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this, I got to do this. But remember how Jesus told the apostles, don't do anything till you go to Jerusalem and receive the Spirit of God. So this isn't about self-empowerment. This isn't about, we'll go get it, we can do this. But this is about, we need the Spirit of God in our lives. And then also, this is a time in this prayer to not only turn and lean on the Spirit of God, but but if you're going through difficulty in your life right now, particularly if you're going through difficulty for the sake of God, just stop and reflect for just a minute and understand that God is with you. That brotherhood is born in the trenches. 
that you're not just a mere beneficiary of the grace of Jesus Christ, but now you are suffering with him in fellowship of sufferings with Christ. That is an honor. So, so may this time right now just be an opportunity to be refreshed to be reminded of the importance of what's going on in your life, to be empowered by the Spirit of God, that God might be able by His power and grace to help you stand firm in the face of the difficulties coming your way. And if you don't have any, then get empowered now, so go find some. Amen? Let's stand and pray. God, I know for me and for for many like me, my tendency is comfort and ease, that there's a, a, a flesh part of us that wants to go with the flow to not stand out. And yet, Lord, to understand that we're not just recipients of grace, but Lord, we're also citizens of a kingdom that is at war with the kingdom of this world. And so I pray, Lord, for those of us that are here, Lord, first of all, for those that are suffering, particularly those that are suffering for the cause of Christ, I pray, Lord, that in this season more than ever, they would lean into you. That you would, by your grace, empower them with your spirit even now to stand firm on your promises, to endure and be steadfast, to lock arms side by side with other believers who can fight with them and for them to not shy away from either your chastisement or the persecution of others, but to realize the grace of being able to stand for a king who stood against sin for us. And Lord, for us as a church overall, Lord, help us to not be an ineffective church that lives for ourselves only. God, if there's areas where we've done so, Lord, we repent before you and I pray, God, that you would would just change our course. I pray, God, that even right now your spirit would come upon anyone here, Lord, that would join in that prayer. Lord, may your spirit just empower this church just as it did the early church. May the same spirit that wrote these words, Lord, blow into our lives and empower us, Lord, to make a difference, to be at war with sin, to be at war with sinful culture, to be at war for the lives of the lost. And I pray, God, that you would use this church as an outpost, that we would live, Lord, as citizens of the city of God. That is, it would be said of us, as it was said of Abraham, that we lived as pilgrims, Lord, that that we weren't living for things here, but we might live for you. But Lord, may our motivation for that always be the gospel. To remember, as we'll see in this next chapter, that you walked away from supreme comfort, power, influence, that you laid all those aside and you willfully entered significant suffering that we might be born again. So right now, as Sam begins to play, I want you to just take an opportunity in your own heart to just seek the Lord. Wherever you are in life, just seek him. Ask that his spirit would come. He promises that if you ask for it, he'll send it abundantly. So ask, do you need the Holy Spirit that you can endure difficulty and stand firm? Then ask for it. Do you need the spirit because you've been a coward and you need to be able to stand for faith in front of the people in your workplace or at school? Ask for it. Do you need the spirit so that you can show your own family and your own children what it looks like to depend on the spirit of God? Then ask for it. And then sing out a prayer of genuine faith 
knowing that God promises to answer that prayer. Let's pray and sing. still closed. This idea, live a life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is absolutely impossible to do apart from the power of God. It's the life of Christ lived through us. The, The Bible makes no, the Bible makes absolutely no concessions for us to live that life out on its own, but instead he empowers us that the life of Christ might live through us. And so, Forget suffering for a minute. Some of you are suffering, some aren't. Forget the difficulties that are associated with just living for Jesus. Some of you are experiencing those right now. Some of you aren't. Let's just talk about sin because all of us are experiencing that. It is the power of the Spirit of God that gives us the ability to live for Him. And so God, may you make your people holy. May your spirit empower us to live a life worthy of our calling. May it be said of us, just as we read in Shakespeare's words, that it's the blood of Christ now that flows with majesty through us. 
And so God, will you grant people even right now as they're thinking of these very sins, Lord, will you grant them repentance of sin? Lord, right now, as as all of us in this room think of the things that we struggle with, the temptations that come our way, God, may you empower us, may you empower them, may you empower me to walk in a manner worthy of the calling by which we've been called. Lord, prone to wander, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love, but Lord, may you right now seal our hearts. Thanks.